Thanks for tuning into this podcast from KYMN Radio. Consider subscribing to get notifications the next time we post a podcast. And if you enjoy this, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast and share with a friend or on social media.
is the music of a generation that did not want your attention, your advice, your sympathy, or, at least superficially, your love. It is the music of a generation that simply wanted to be left alone. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, Generation X was seen by many as a hopeless case. We were a boorish, sullen lot, doomed to spend our days sleeping on our friends' couches and in our parents' basements. We were slackers, unengaged, uninterested in making anything of ourselves, devoid of ambition and direction, and worse yet, that didn't seem to bother us. At least, that's how the older generation liked to describe us. To the uninitiated, non-understanding baby boomers and members of the so-called greatest generation, we were a lost cause. But in truth, we were just trying to figure things out. What people older than us saw as ambivalence and apathy was in reality something much deeper, and that something was best reflected in our music. You may think that grunge music is about anger, but in truth it's as much about depression and cynicism as anything else. It is dark and heavy and brooding. It repudiates expectations set upon us by people who seemingly refuse to try to understand us. It's the voice of a generation coming of age, but far wiser than our years would belie. It certainly contains elements of anger, but there's also a sense that a lot of what we were supposed to believe in was just wrong, and that the people who were trying to shape our values for us were hypocritical, ignorant, and sometimes just flat out lying to us. My generation took all that slacker cynicism and then mixed it up with our older siblings' sneering punk attitude, Led Zeppelin's low end, and, if we're being honest, a little heroin. The result was the musical version of Beckett's Waiting for Godot. It was gorgeous art that was absolutely sure that nothing really matters, making it feel immediate and important to a 20-year-old kid just trying to find their way in a world that had promised opportunity but surely wasn't going to deliver on that promise. Tonight, on the anniversary of Grunge's Big Bang, we are going to hear some of the high points in a very specific period of time in music history. And we're going to talk about the geographic epicenter of that time, and we're going to talk about the people who left some of the biggest impressions on the music of Generation X. Tonight, we're going to talk about Grunge. My name is Rich Larson. This is the Weekly List. Well, good evening, everybody. You're listening to 95.1 KYMN Radio in beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us once again for another edition of the Weekly List. And uh, <laughs> welcome to the Great Dichotomy Show. Um, this week, we take a look at the uh, the grunge era, and we're going to talk a lot about Generation X. Uh, and like a lot of people my age, I was I was born in 1969. I'm 51 years old. It puts me like just smack dab in the middle of uh, of of Generation X. Like a lot of people my age, I just I hate the word grunge. Nor am I really a fan of the term Generation X. Um, and you know, obviously it's because, you know, you label something. Once you do that, you, you attempt to define it and that inevitably leads to stereotyping and no one likes to be stereotyped. And, and you know, it just, it, it, it seems artificial. So, you know, I, I cringe uh, a little bit when I hear those words, even as I use them myself. And even as I attempt 
to define these things in a one hour radio show. I, I, I know that it's impossible to do that. And really, this is just a <laughs> ridiculous exercise. So let's not take this, uh, the show that way at all. Okay. Let's just, let's just go ahead and call this an hour or so of music that I was listening to in my early twenties and, and call it good. All right. Okay. Thank you. Just work with me on this one, folks. This isn't easy for me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> with all that said, um, today is the, the 29th anniversary of the release of the first song we heard tonight. Um, Nirvana put out their first major label single on September 10th, 1991. And it was, uh, we all know, it was a song called Smells Like Teen Spirit. Okay, so Teen Spirit is a brand of deodorant that was uh, first sold almost 30 years ago. It's, it's, it's just a, actually, it's not that much older than the song and is actually still available today uh, in scents called uh, there's one called pink crush and there's one called sweet strawberry in April of 1991. Um, that was the deodorant of choice uh, used by a woman named Toby Vale, who was uh, she was the drummer of the, uh, of, of the band Bikini Kill, which is a Seattle, a Seattle based band. I actually think they were from Olympia. Um, but they were, they were, a they were, a you know, basically a, 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 a female hardcore punk band or something akin to that. Um, and she happened to be Toby Vale, the drummer happened to be dating a guy named Kurt Cobain, uh, who at that point in April of 90, 1991, was the singer and the guitarist in a band from Aberdeen, Washington, uh, called Nirvana. Okay. So what, <laughs> there's a, there's a point to this. I promise you one night when they were all gathered, uh, at, at Cobain's house, uh, the bikini kills lead singer, uh, Kathleen Hanna wrote Kurt smells like teen spirit on his wall. Now he had Cobain had no idea what, the reference was to the deodorant um, and that that was his girlfriend's deodorant or whatever, but he liked the phrase a lot. He thought it was sort of a, a revolutionary statement. Uh, so he decided to use it as the title for the song he'd been working on now. Okay. As we all know, smells like teen spirit uh, became one of the most iconic songs of the last what? 50 years certainly last 30 years. Uh, maybe it's one of the most iconic songs of all time, but it, I mean, there's no, there's no arguing it. It absolutely changed the musical landscape. Here's my, my favorite. Uh, this is my favorite illustration of that point. So shortly after smells like teen spirit was released, uh, Nirvana put out their, their major, uh, label debut album. Never mind. Uh, on September 24th, 1991, Two months later, just in time for Christmas, Michael Jackson released his album Dangerous. Now, Michael Michael Jackson is at in 1991 was still the king of pop, and he had ruled the charts for uh, almost ten years. Like ever since Thriller had become the biggest selling album of all time uh, in like '83, Michael Jackson was the man, and Dangerous immediately became the number one album in America. Uh, this is, this is what I love about this. It, it, it turned out though, the album was, was so popular because so many 
parents and, and grandparents or whatever, uh, were buying that album to give to their kids as a Christmas present. <laughs> in the days after Christmas in 1991, um, music stores were like inundated by this record number of returns. All these kids who had gotten the Michael Jackson album for Christmas were bringing them back to the record store and exchanging them for Nirvana's album. Never mind. So what happened was that, that it, uh, <laughs> it, it didn't just knock it. Well, it, it, it became the first number one album, Nirvana, n- never mind, became the first number one album of 1992 and it knocked Michael Jackson right off the charts. And that was it, man. After that, Nirvana had, had, had completed its, you know, overnight meteoric success. They were now the biggest band in the world. They had, they'd kicked in the door to success for a lot of other bands that were going to follow them. And America had discovered, uh, this music that would come to be known now as grunge. All right. But. Nirvana didn't invent grunge or the Seattle music scene for that matter. You, 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 you can't really point to any single band that did that going back as far as 1984 and, and, and probably even further than that. Um, there had been a really amazing hardcore rock scene in Seattle. Um, there was a band called green river, uh, which was led by a guy named Mark arm, uh, who was the, who would later form mud honey. Um, and he had in his band, uh, a guy named Steve Turner, another guy playing guitar named stone Gossard. Um, uh, the bass player in green river was a guy named Jeff Ament. Um, and, and you know, the guys in green river couldn't really agree on the direction uh, they wanted their, their band to go. So they split up in, in 87 and, and Gossard and Ament then formed a band called mother love bone featuring a, a, a front man named Andy Wood. Uh, both Ament and Gossard will tell you, um, that part of the reason the green river broke up was because they wanted to pursue a major label deal. Um, but arm Mark arm wanted the band to stay independent so in Andy Wood, Gossard and Amond found a guy who was a kindred spirit. They, 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 and then some, actually. Andy Wood wanted to be a rock star. He wanted to play arenas. He wanted to sing his music in front of thousands of people at a time. And he was in, you know, for to me, he was the the, the prototypical front man. He was he, he had an amazing voice, great lyricist. He was a good looking guy. He was, you know. It, it, personality and charisma just for days. Um, and he was actually roommates, uh, with another really great Seattle, uh, front man named Chris Cornell, who had a band called Soundgarden. Uh, the two of them got to be really close friends and, and there was a really healthy competition between the two of them. Uh, each one was writing a song every day, trying to impress the other. And it really raised the quality, uh, of the music for, for, for both the bands. So, okay, so so, Gossard Naiman and 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 Andy Wood, they get Mother Love Bone together, and very quickly, uh, Mother Love Bone uh, became the most talked about band in Seattle. And and by March of of 1989, they had signed with uh, uh, with Polygram Records, and so they got that major label deal, and they had released their first EP called Shine. 
and they were poised by 1990 um, to be the band that was going to break things open for Seattle, for that whole Seattle music scene. Um, there is no doubt in my mind that Andrew Wood was about to become a major, major rock star, just exactly as he had dreamed of. And then um, on March 19th, 1990, just as just as Mother Lovebone was actually, they were scheduled to release their debut full-length album within the week, uh, Andy Wood died of a heroin overdose. Um, now, I, I, I've known this story for more than 30 years, and I still don't really know what to say about it. I mean, most of you know it comes next for Gossard and Amit, but I, I, I mean, I just can't imagine what it was like for that community to experience that right then, to get that close to something that was so exciting, only to experience just, I mean, utter tragedy that, that just wipes out not just the opportunity um, or, and something that, that not just takes out your band, but like, I mean, your friend is dead. I mean, that experience, Andrew Wood informed the music that came out of Seattle for years after that. Uh, uh, Chris Cornell uh, talking about Andy Wood in, in, in 2010 said, quote, People surmised that, that Kurt blowing his head off was, was the end of the innocence, but it wasn't. It was walking into that hospital room where Andy was on life support before they turned off the machines. Four years prior to Kurt Cobain committing suicide. Um, Andy Wood wanted nothing more in life than to be an, uh, an enormous rock star. And had he lived there, it, like, there's no doubt in my mind that that's exactly what would have happened. Um, instead, however, uh, he became something else. He's a legend. Um, and he became the great muse of the Seattle rock scene. And he's one of the great sources of inspiration for that music. He wanted, he wanted to be a rock star. And instead, Andy Wood became an icon. So from their 1989 EP, Shine, this is Andrew Wood and Mother Love Bone with Chloe Dancer, Crown of Thorns, a 95.1 KYMN.
Well, I can't beat all the powerless when my cup's already overfilled. Yeah. But it's on the table of fires cooking, and the farming babies will sleep. Temple of the Dog with Hunger Strike. Uh, Temple of the Dog was an album made by Chris Cornell, Stone Gossard, and Jeff Ament as a, a tribute to Andy Wood. Uh, that also featured a couple of guys that Gossard and Ament had started jamming with. Uh, Mike McCready on lead guitar and a young singer who had just moved to Seattle uh, from San Diego named Eddie Vedder. We'll, we'll get to the rest of that story a little bit later. 
but for now, suffice to say that that there really were more bands from Seattle than Nirvana, Soundgarden, and the guys who eventually became uh, Pearl Jam. Alice in Chains, for instance, was uh, another just seminal band from from that that golden age between 1989 and 1984. Um, Alice in Chains actually formed in 1987. And are still together today, but the prime of their band just coincides with that that same time frame. Uh, we should talk about this real quick. For me, the real prime of of grunge started when when Mother Love Bone released Shine in 1989, and ended um, right around when Kurt Cobain died. And really, um, grunge had even grunge had really kind of been on the downslide for a while by that point. Um, you have to keep the ethos of this movement in mind. This was music that was not being made for anyone but the musicians and their friends in that community. Of course, it was marketed to the masses, but no one was really more surprised by the success of these bands and of this music uh, more than the bands themselves. And, and, and to a lesser extent, the record company is releasing this music. Um, there's a whole component to this about how a lot of these guys did not want to be rock stars. Now, I know a lot of you are thinking to yourself, well, how, I mean, that sounds really stupid. Like if, if, if you don't want to be a rock star, don't join a band. But like, honestly, I mean, think about it. First of all, how often, if you join a band, how often do you really become an honest to God rock star? Like it doesn't happen very often. Right. But think about the loss of anonymity um, and it, that, that comes with the kind of fame that, that Nirvana and Pearl Jam had that quickly and what that would do to your life. I mean, yes. I mean, you've, you, you probably have enough money to insulate yourself, but now how are you supposed to relate to the rest of the world? People who do not know you are throwing all of this love and adulation at you or worse they're judging you based on whatever preconceived notion that they have about you. And it completely turns the world upside down. Now consider the fact that these are people who had, had really, they'd consider themselves outsiders their entire lives and they had formed their personalities around that. A guy like Kurt Cobain is smart and sensitive and intelligent. And the guy was a, he was a brilliant guy as smart as he was simply did not have the tools to cope with that. And if you're already experimenting with controlled substances, suddenly something like heroin looks like a pretty good escape. And so, you know, the drugs started to take over and some of these guys started retreating from music and some of them even lost interest. And, and, and suddenly, you know, this, this gigantic mountain of grunge, you know, you're on the downside. You're living in the in the decline of a civilization almost as soon as you've discovered it. And then, okay, and then on top of that, you throw in all that crap like, you know, heroin chic in the fashion industry and the way the mainstream really attempted to cash in on uh, the popularity of this music. And that's the stuff that just, I mean, that's the stuff that makes me sick to my stomach and, and makes me wonder how some of these bands stayed together or have stayed together for as long as they did. Anyway, um, back to Alice in Chains. Uh, they were a band that was 
overshadowed, I think, by Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. But but they're still a, a, an incredible band. Jer- guitarist Jerry Cantrell, um, frontman Lane Staley, those guys created a brand of music that that I mean, it, it combined elements of funk and soul with with metal and that and that Seattle sound. To me, Cantrell is easily among the best songwriters to emerge from that scene, which is. I mean, think about it. That's really saying something. And and Lane Staley was none of the one of those guys with a just that powerful voice and 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 just more personality than anyone really should be able to control. And and of course, Lane Staley also had a heroin habit. Um, actually, Lane Staley's demise is is kind of gruesome. He uh, he died of a speedball overdose, um, which is like that the the cocaine heroin uh, mixture, the same thing that killed. John Belushi. Um, anyway, he died. Lane Staley died on April fifth, two thousand two. However, uh, his body wasn't found until two weeks later, um, partly because his drug use had just alienated all of his friends and loved ones. So people were just leaving him alone. It's a sad, sad story. Anyway, um, this song. I first heard this song. Uh, on the soundtrack from from Cameron Crowe's film Singles, which which it, that movie is a whole other thing we should talk about, but we probably won't get there. Um, the title of the song is a it, it's a play on words. Uh, the way they spelled the title is is different, but it's uh, it's yet another tribute to Andy Wood um, from 1992. This is Alice in Chains with Wood, a 95.1 KYMN. The one.
That was Mud Honey with Touch Me, I'm Sick off of their debut EP, Super Fuzz Big Muff. Uh, <laughs> you can make the case a lot of Seattle bands sold out, but uh, Mark Arm and Steve Turner of Mud Honey have done a better job of keeping it real than most of them. Uh, Mud Honey is actually still together today, by the way. Our Arm. Uh, back in the day, had had resisted the idea of signing with a major label for years, which is uh, part of the reason that that Green River broke up. Um, but in in ninety two, in nineteen ninety two, there was just such a feeding frenzy by the the big labels to sign any band from Seattle that a band like Mud Honey got just truckloads of money thrown at them. So they signed, they took the money, they kept making the same music that they'd always made. Uh, and when the le- label inevitably dropped them for being the exact band that had signed on with them in the first place, they just went back to Sub Pop. Uh, Sub Pop. We, okay, we have to talk about Sub Pop rapper- Records for a second now, too. Um, Sub Pop Records was, they were the incubator um, for nearly every band that we're going to talk about tonight. Nirvana, Muddle of Bone, Green River, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, they all had a relationship with some pop with sub pop at one time or another. Sub pop was, was founded uh, in 1986 by uh, two guys, Bruce Pavitt and, and Jonathan Pullman. And it was, it was Pavitt in fact, who actually coined the term grunge. Um, they were the guys that were able to collect that regional sound that was coming out of the state of Washington and, and in the Pacific North Northwest and sort of, focus it and give it a a platform. I mean, um, there's, there's just no, uh, understating the importance of sub pop records. If there's no sub pop, most likely the world never hears of Nirvana or any of those other bands. Okay. So, uh, we interrupt this special encore presentation of the grunge show to do this. Time now. For the weekly list, Haiku Corner, brought to you by Imminent Brewing, a truly poetic brewery. Here is your host, Haiku Rich. Another repeat? This is what you used to do. Dan has made you soft. Smells like teen spirit. Kicked Michael right off the charts. Then everything changed. Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Nirvana, Alice in Chains. No wonder I'm deaf. In my opinion, the best band name of all time is Mother Lovebone. It just could not last. Pop Culture co-opted it and then gave us Creed. What a delight. This has been Haiku Corner. Thank you, Imminent. Yeah, it's it's just not as much fun without without Danny here, but you know, anyway. 
haikus. So we want to thank Laura and Derek Myers for making the weekly list possible every week by uh, by sponsoring the show and for being you know great people. And just just I mean, so we're clear on this. This is uh, uh, a new commercial that I recorded. Uh, let's see, today is uh, October sixteenth, October September sixteenth, the year of our Lord twenty twenty one. I'm re-recording or reinserting or putting a new commercial in because you don't need to hear about. Uh, um, the uh, the COVID precautions that Imminent Brewing was taking a year ago. Anyway, but you do need to hear about the precautions that uh, Imminent Brewing is taking right now. Um, and look, I know that, that you're sick of hearing about it because I, for God's sakes, I am sick as hell as of talking about this. But, um, you know, COVID's still out there. The Delta variant is still out there. Now we're starting to hear about this MU variant that's that's out there somewhere. And oh, Folks, just please, please, please go get vaccinated. Please, the only way this thing is going to end is if we all get vaccinated. Ain't no herd immunity coming until we all get vaccinated. Just get the shots. Thank you. Um. Anyway, it's still out there, and Imminent Brewing believes in social responsibility. So, if you have been vaccinated, uh, you are not required to wear a mask, but it is strongly encouraged. If you have not been vaccinated, um, well, you are still not required to wear a mask, but it is strongly encouraged. I am fully vaccinated, but I continue to wear a mask behind the bar because I know I can still contract the virus and I can spread it, and I do not want to make anyone sick. It's that simple. It's it's just something uh, everyone else should be thinking about too. Okay, <clears throat> there's no live music uh, at Imminent Brewing this week, but uh, you should know that uh, Imminent Brewing is going to be at the Northfield uh, Northfield's um, Hispanic Heritage Celebration uh, on Saturday morning. Uh, well, actually, all day Saturday. It's going to run from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, this thing is it's exactly what it sounds like. It's Northfield's Celebration of Hispanic Heritage. Um, because we are in Hispanic, Hispanic, uh, Hispanic Heritage Month. It started on September 15th, and it's going to run through October 15th. Um, and all the Latinx uh, people and all you know, folks of, of Hispanic descent who have come to this country and made such wonderful contributions, we're celebrating all of that. Thank you for coming. Thank you for bringing your culture with you. We love your culture. I love your culture. Anyway, um, uh, I think it's really cool. Anyway, uh, I love I, there's food and music and dancing and art, which I love all of that. And Imminent will be there uh, with the beer. And for this celebration, they've created a brand new Mole Prairie Creek Porter. Uh, this is a take on, on the uh, the Mole Porter that uh, Imminent has had in the past uh, using cacao nibs and a, and a variety of roasted chili peppers. Uh, a little chocolate, a little heat. It's really, it's really good. And And just so you know, for every beer they sell at the Hispanic Heritage Celebration, Imminent Brewing will donate $1 toward the celebration for next year. Dragon Squirrel Juicy IPA, Cannon River Pale Ale, Wolf Creek IPA, Prairie Creek Porter, Go for the Gosa, which is a German sour, Lil R&R, R&R stands for Raspberry and Rhubarb, Honey Basil, uh, Honey Basil Ale, Question Mark Hill Wheat, Oktoberfest, and the Double Agent J Double IPA, all on tap. Double Agent J is not available in growlers or howlers, but you can get it in uh, 22 ounce uh, bombers. And you know, the thing's got a got a really cool label on it. It's really cool. Um, food trucks this week. Uh, Nori's Cuisine uh, tomorrow for sure. Uh, tomorrow for sure tomorrow maybe on saturday um after the heritage festival i'm not sure about sunday yet what's going to happen there but but stay tuned 
Imminent Brewing is open from 4 to 9 p.m. on Thursdays and 4 to 9 p.m. on Fridays, 2 to 9 p.m. on Saturdays, where I am normally there, but I won't be there this Saturday, and 2 to 7 on Sundays. I will be there uh, until 7 o'clock on Sunday. So if you know you want to come and see me, there I am. For all the information you need, visit imminentbrewing.com. We now return you to pre-recorded programming. Okay, this uh, this show is really about the music that came out of Seattle between 1989 and 1994, but we need to step out of side, outside of that a little bit. Like I said, Kurt Cobain and Andrew Wood and Chris Cornell and Eddie Vedder, those, those guys didn't invent grunge. Like Like most genres of music, it's tough to pinpoint one originator, but Neil Young is the guy that they call the godfather of grunge. I mean, he was making music that was loud and heavy, um, but was extremely, extremely melodic um, with his band Crazy Horse 25 years before Nirvana d- dethroned Michael Jackson. Um, in 1990, he and Crazy Horse released an album called Ragged Glory. And I remember uh, reading the review of that in Rolling Stone. The guy who wrote it said it would, said the whole album was like uh, 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 the last 20 seconds of Cinnamon Girl, where Neil just sort of cuts loose with this guitar-heavy coda. And honestly, there, there must have been something in the air right about then, because Ragged Glory really does sort of foreshadow all of this music that was that was that was to come that we're talking about tonight. And uh, and then Neil and and Crazy Horse went on uh, tour, and I got to see them in early '91. They were it was a, a three uh, three band bill with Social Distortion and and Sonic Youth, who were two just super loud and aggressive bands. And I mean, this is Neil Young, right? I mean, he's known as much for the 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 beautiful like folky acoustic stuff uh, as he is for his loud rock and roll. But on that tour. I mean, there wasn't an acoustic guitar within five miles of the building. I mean, it was, it was all just pure rock and roll. And, and, um, I mean, it's just, it's no wonder to me that the, the Seattle guys, particularly the guys in Pearl Jam have really gravitated to Neil over the years. So this is, uh, this is from the live album that he released after that tour, uh, Weld, uh, with one of the songs uh, that got the whole thing going. This is actually, the song itself was released on an album, uh, f- the first Neil Young and Cra- Crazy Horse album called uh, Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere. Um, this is Neil Young and Crazy Horse with Cinnamon Girl. A 95-year-old
that was the breeders with cannonball um the breeders were a, a side project of kim deal who was the bass player for uh uh boston uh punk band called the pixies well you've probably heard of the pixies she uh she originally formed the breeders with tanya donnelly of uh throwing muses and later of another band called belly and i just i love how how all of this works the breeders had a pretty big hit with cannonball which is uh it's a really good song but it, it would not have been a hit in really any other era of music so you could make the case that it wouldn't have, I mean, you probably wouldn't have even heard that song had it not been um, for Kurt Cobain and Smells Like Teen Spirit. So when I was doing research for the show, I came across an interview that Cobain uh, gave to Rolling Stone just shortly before he died, where he talked about how much he loved the Pixies and the Breeders and how much Smells Like Teen Spirit was just him trying to rip off the Pixies sound. So, you know, I don't know what you call that. Is it, is it a full circle thing? Is it a self-fulfilling prophecy? Whatever it is, I, I think it's pretty cool. All right. <laughs> Moving on. Um, <laughs> okay. Speaking of Kurt Cobain, um, this show would be incomplete without a discussion of Cobain's wife, who was the lightning rod of the Seattle music scene, uh, Courtney Love. Um, there's just not a lot of in between with Courtney. You either love her or you hate her. I personally am am quite fond of Courtney. I, I, I sort of I understand why people don't like her. You know, back in the day, Courtney was obnoxious, and uh, she was she was like this. She was the cliched wife slash girlfriend of the big rock star, and like was. <laughs> almost skillfully able to combine combine the um uh the most annoying qualities of both Yoko Ono, John Lennon's wife Yoko Ono and Sid Vicious's girlfriend Nancy Spungen. Um but she's also she's a she's a pretty legitimate songwriter. She's a pretty good musician and she's a phenomenal performer in her own right. Um her band Hole made made a couple of pretty good albums in the 1990s with with uh, live through this in 1994 which is it's actually released the same week that uh, like a week after uh uh Kurt Cobain was found dead um and uh in 1998 they put out celebrity skin now there have been all kinds of rumors about Courtney over the years a lot of people like to say that to them it's obvious that you know Kurt Cobain wrote all the music for live through this and uh, her, her, her pre and post Kurt Cobain boyfriend, Billy Corgan of smashing pumpkins wrote all the music for celebrity skin. And I just, I think that's really disrespectful uh, to Courtney loves bandmates in whole, uh, especially uh, Eric Erlinson, who was the guitarist and, and uh, Melissa Oftimar who played bass in that band and and to to Kristen Pfaff who was the original bassist of of Hole and also died of a heroin overdose shortly after uh Live Through This came out um and then there's that just <laughs> stupid and yes you know who you who I'm talking to here I said stupid conspiracy theory that Courtney had her husband murdered 
I mean, I'm not even, I'm not going to dignify that idea by saying anything else. It's just, it's, it's stupid. Anyway, here from 1994's Live Through This is Hole uh, with Violet on 95.1 The One. And the sky was made of amethyst. And all the stars are just like little fish. You should learn when to go. You should learn how to say no.
was Soundgarden from their 1994 album Super Unknown with Fell on Black Days. Uh, we mentioned uh, Chris Cornell and Soundgarden quite a bit on this show. Um, that band was a cornerstone of the Seattle scene. And I mean, w- when you talk about the heaviness of that music, the first band I think of is, is Soundgarden. And, you know, if that scene was a community, which it very clearly was, then Cornell was just, he was the natural leader of that community. Um, after he died, I wrote that he was kind of like a, a Pacific Northwest Sinatra. Um, they, all these, you know, immensely talented people tended to congregate around him. And, and he was the guy who didn't seem to be uncomfortable in the spotlight. Not that he was searching for it, but was just something he seemed to be able to handle better, uh, better than the others. Until of course he didn't. Um, this is something else that I've written about. Um, to me, Chris Cornell is the great cautionary tale for generation X in middle age. Um, Cornell died because he lost a battle with depression, uh, that he had been fighting for more than 30 years. There's this conception that depression is something that comes and goes with youth. Everyone in their twenties deals with depression because they're in their twenties. And then you turn 30 and magically it just, it's supposed to go away because you know, I don't know. Somehow you've been adulting long enough that you're expected to understand life or maybe, you know, your emotions are just naturally muted or like Ali Sheedy said in that movie, The Breakfast Club, when you grow up, your heart dies. Well, like, you know, none of that is true, right? In fact, it's just a huge load of crap. Um, Chris Cornell was the poster child for a generation that had been through hell and had come out of it okay. And he died because he was depressed. Um, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Uh, Depression is absolutely nothing to dismiss or to ignore or to mock. It's real, and it's a killer. And brothers and sisters, if it's you, please, please find some help. Ask for help. Talk to someone. Do not mess around with it. Okay. Well, folks, that's going to just about do it for this edition of the weekly list. Uh, If you like the show and you want to hear more, you can visit our program page on the KYMN website at KYMNradio.net. Or you can find our uh, Facebook page under the weekly list where I post every new show every Friday morning. You should also go like the KYMN Facebook page if you're going to go if you're going to go spend some time on Facebook, you should really go like the KYM and Facebook page. Uh, uh, Terry Knight and Jeff Johnson, uh, they do an incredible job of just keeping us up to date on, on what's going on with schools and hospitals, local government, local businesses. If you live in Rice County, you want to pay attention to this stuff. It's the best source for all your local news and everything they do, all those interviews, all those stories, everything lands on that Facebook page. So give them a like. And also, as long as you're on Facebook, go like the, uh, the imminent Facebook page as well. Um, you know, getting through uh, this pandemic with all the restrictions and special rules for businesses like theirs, things are always changing and things are always being fine tuned as we have just seen in this last week or so. 
Um, the imminent Facebook page is the best way to keep abreast of what's going on over there. So give them a like too. Okay. So <laughs> this has been an especially talky show, um, which is not necessarily what I ever want for, for these shows. This is really supposed to be about the music. Um, but there's just, you know, I've got a lot to say on this per uh, this, uh, uh, this particular subject. Um, however, I have already gone on too long. So we're just going to leave you with a song by Pearl Jam. Uh, obviously, um, you know, we, t- we, we talked about Green River and Mother Love Bone and Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament. I mean, I don't know if those guys are just a, a study in, in perseverance or if they're like proof of destiny or, or, or what, but you have to respect what they went through to get to what, where they are now. Green river got close to success and then imploded. Mother love bone was right on the precipice of big stuff. And then that collapsed. So what were the odds that those guys were going to be able to put another band together um, and that they would find one of the most intriguing singers of their entire generation, just kind of biding his time in San Diego, waiting for an opportunity. Somehow Stone Gassard and Jeff Amond teamed up with a, a childhood friend of Gassard's named Mike McCready, and then somehow found that singer, Eddie Vedder, and formed Pearl Jam, and took that all the way to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, this song is something I could probably talk about for another half hour. Uh, it, it's, it's almost the, almost the prototypical grunge song in that it, it's got a great melody and it's, it's spare and very rough and unproduced. Um, and the words are absolutely unintelligible. <laughs> As a matter of fact, um, you know, I've known this song for almost 30 years and, and it was just this week I was sort of dumbfounded when I realized that there are, there are actual lyrics, uh, to this song. With all that said, um, it's a, a beloved Pearl Jam song that has sort of been their, their traditional closer uh, for their shows for a long time. So I figure it's a good way to end this show. Um, this is Pearl Jam with Yellow Lead Better. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'll talk to you guys again next week. Peace.
95.1. The One revolutionizes radio with a playlist that lasts for days, not minutes. Thanks for listening to this KYMN radio podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast or found it interesting, consider leaving us a review and sharing this podcast on social media. You can find more podcasts like it on our website, kymnradio.net, or wherever you get your podcasts, simply by searching the KYMN radio podcast. And of course, you can listen to us live on 95.1 FM, 1080 AM, and on our website. KYMN is your home for real radio, true variety.